0: Uh, for those of you who m- may not know me, my name is Grant Dix. Uh, my wife and I, uh, as Pastor Tyler mentioned in his uh, prayer, we have the privilege of being your missionaries, uh, preparing to be sent to Hungary, Lord willing, in the next month or so. We're, we're getting really close and we're eager to get there uh, and minister on your behalf. Uh, during the past two years, that we've been here, we've been discipled by this church, um, mostly by the the elders, and we've been prepared to be sent to Hungary and to be an extension of CCF uh, ministering in that location. Over the past several weeks, our congregation has been going over some foundational topics, uh, specifically as it relates to family, marriage, roles of husbands and wives, uh, as well as parenthood. Today's sermon is also going to be on a foundational topic uh, because it's essentially on the gospel. If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. It's towards uh, the end of your Bibles. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, we have several on the resource table uh, back there in the corner, and you're welcome to take one as this church's gift to you. As I said, we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. These are some of the introductory verses to Peter's uh, first letter. My prayer is that we'll be encouraged by the fact that our salvation is both a, a present and a future reality. I'll read the passage for us this morning, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into see what we can learn from uh, this these verses this morning. 1 Peter 1, 3-9, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you that we can gather here as your people We thank you for this passage of scripture that you inspired uh, your servant Peter to write, to encourage and challenge us with. I pray that we we would be both encouraged and challenged uh, as we study your word this morning. Uh, Help us to see uh, the goodness of your gospel and help us to be challenged to live in ways that honors uh, and glorifies you. I pray that you would speak through me uh, this morning. You would be glorified. We love you, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. In the two verses that come before our passage this morning, uh, the Apostle Peter has established who his audience is. He names them uh, the elect exiles of the dispersion. He then goes on and lists uh, several geographic locations where these people are located in. So Peter has established that he is speaking in this passage to Christians. Uh, He's also established that he's speaking to Christians who are in some way facing persecutions. That's seen in the introductory verses as well as uh, in later verses in the text that we're going to be going through. Many of the letters in the New Testament follow a common pattern that helps us to better understand the key points of what the authors and the Holy Spirit through them uh, were trying to communicate, were communicating. Uh, The first part of that layout is that there's an introduction, which we just mentioned, where the audience is named and usually the author is named as well. Following that, there is some discussion of some aspects of the gospel, some gospel doctrine. And then following that, there's usually an application of that doctrine that somehow relates to the situation that the audience is going through during that time. Paul takes this approach in many of his letters, uh, including the book of Romans, uh, where he spends the first 11 chapters describing the intricacies of the gospel, going into gospel doctrine. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he begins by saying, "'Therefore, brothers,' He then moves into the application of gospel doctrine to the lives of his audience. This pattern is significant because it shows us that the gospel is not just something that we say we believe and then continue living our lives uh, in a way that is no different than those around us who don't believe in the gospel. Instead, the gospel is supposed to affect every part of our lives. The writers of the New Testament intended to teach us how to apply gospel doctrine to our lives. Now, Peter follows this, uh, this same pattern in this book, this letter that he's written. But instead of giving us several chapters, he gives us two paragraphs, one of which is the paragraph that we're going to be uh, looking in depth into today. The apostle Peter has two goals in mind when he's giving his overview of the gospel at the beginning of this letter. These goals come from uh, his knowledge of the audience that he's writing to, the, uh, the elect exiles that he named in the first two verses. He wants to first encourage those that he is writing to by assuring them of the solidity of the gospel. He then wants to move on to encourage them, uh, to encourage actions that are in line with the gospel. He wants to encourage them to live lives that are shaped by the gospel. This then is also my goal this morning, to assure us of the solidity of the gospel, the, the trustworthiness of the gospel, and then to encourage us to live lives that are shaped by gospel doctrine. Now, we're going to do this by discussing the twofold nature of salvation uh, that Peter describes in his letter. This, these will be the two points uh, for this sermon. First, we're going to see that salvation is accomplished. Salvation is accomplished. We'll see that in the first verse of this passage. After that, we'll move on to see that salvation is coming. While salvation has been accomplished, salvation is also coming. First, salvation is accomplished. Peter begins this paragraph by praising God for the fact that he, God, has accomplished salvation. Peter says why he praises God in verse 3, saying that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this is just a, a, a short section of a sentence, but it includes several statements that should give us great comfort. And like the Apostle Peter, we should be moved to say, as he does in the beginning of that verse, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is some background that needs to be established in order to understand why Peter starts in the way that he does, we have to ask ourselves a few key questions to really understand this this statement, this section of this sentence. First, we have to ask, what causes the need to be born again and And then we have to ask what hopelessness needed a living hope. And then finally, we need to ask the question, how did the resurrection of Jesus change? anything so let's let's begin by tackling those three questions first why do we need to be born again the Apostle Paul gives us probably the most simple answer to that question in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 he says and you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked so in short we need to be born again because we are dead in our sins This isn't a physical death. Uh, We are all alive here today, uh, whether Christian or not. But in our natural state, we are spiritually dead. And being spiritually dead can have uh, and does have greater consequences than being physically dead. Being spiritually dead means that we are under the eternal wrath of God, rightfully so. And this then explains why Peter tells us that we who are the elect are born again to a living hope, answering the, the next question. Those who have been born again know why a living hope is needed. We know that there are no actions that we can do that will achieve our own justification before God. Again, Peter or Paul helps us understand this in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says that, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, meaning God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This then is the the hopelessness that people find themselves in before the intervention of God. We can know that we've sinned against God by looking at the law, but we cannot then go and try to keep the law on our own. It doesn't work that way, because we have already earned eternal punishment. If a man commits murder and ends up going 10 years without being found out, and during those 10 years, he lives a good life, he volunteers to help with a variety of good causes, food pantries, homeless shelters, he even gives blood, when that person is found out 10 years later, he's still going to be held accountable for that crime that he committed in the past. He's going to be held accountable for that murder. Now, maybe you haven't committed murder, but our sin problem goes far deeper than one terrible sin committed 10 years ago. We are unable to keep God's law perfectly for a day. We aren't able to give God the respect that he deserves because our sin has affected us That deeply, it's in our nature. This makes us guilty of what some call cosmic treason. We owe God our allegiance because He's the owner of all. But instead we act in our own interests. And any crime against an eternal God is deserving of an eternal punishment. So this is this is what we need our salvation from our deadness, our our sin. And Peter here is reminding his readers and us of the fact that the needed salvation has been accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So let's answer then the last question. What did the resurrection of Christ accomplish? In his death on the cross, Jesus became the sacrifice that was needed to pay for the punishment that we deserve In his resurrection, he conquered sin and death. By repenting of our sins and placing our faith in his sacrifice, we can be born again to that living hope. Now, Christ has already accomplished this salvation, he's already risen from the dead. If you are a Christian here today, you can take comfort in this fact. You deserve God's wrath. But God has saved you from his wrath by placing his wrath on his son. Amen. Indeed. If you are not a Christian today and are feeling the hopelessness of where you are, you're, you're feeling the weight of your sin, you recognize your state of spiritual deadness, don't mistake the fact that salvation is accomplished, past tense, as no longer being available. The writer of Hebrews encourage us Encourages us in this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He tells us, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The salvation that has been accomplished continues to save. Christ alone is the one who can save. His sacrificial death and his intercession is the only hope for sinners like us. Repent and believe in him, in his sacrificial death and his reign. He is willing to intercede for sinners who come to him in repentance. So we see in this first verse that Christ has accomplished salvation. Knowing this, what then does it mean that salvation is coming? This is what Peter spends the majority of this paragraph describing. So let's, let's turn to the second point. Salvation is coming. Let's, let's look at the rest of this paragraph as we look at the other side of the twofold description of salvation. Remember verse 3 says, we have been born again. Verse 4 continues the thought, saying, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's a a theme in the Bible that has been come to know uh, as the already not yet. We use this phrase to describe a few different topics in scripture. We use this one to describe the the kingdom of Christ. We see that the kingdom of Christ has been established in the church. But the fullness of the kingdom of Christ is yet to be fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth. It is already here, but it is not yet fully here. This idea of the already-not-yet is true of our salvation as well. And Peter has encouraged us already with the aspects of salvation that have already come about. But then he uses more time to encourage his readers by addressing the not-yet aspect of salvation. Look in verse 4, where he describes salvation as an inheritance. Often people have a a, a document written up, a, a document called a will. This document gives instructions for what to do with that person's possessions following their death. If someone has willed you an inheritance, those belongings are being saved for you to be given to you following that person's death. Similarly, the inheritance of salvation is waiting for God's people. It is something that God has, has willed to his people to be given at a future time. There are, however, several encouraging distinctions, several differences between a human will and God's will. First, a human will is only good so long as the person doesn't spend the inheritance before their death. If someone has willed to you a certain amount of money But then before they pass away, they spend it all on vacations, food, temporary things. There's not going to be any inheritance left for you in that will. Everything is gone. But this is not the case with the inheritance of salvation. God is the owner and ruler of all. Remember what the the writer of Hebrews said. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near. God in his infinite nature cannot spend all of the salvation that he has to offer. Uh, Another key distinction that should encourage us is that God does not die. Instead, in a very real way, our inheritance is received upon our own death. The inheritance of a life spent in submission to God is eternity with God. Uh, Finally, the descriptions that peter uses to describe this inheritance uh, set it apart from a human will and should encourage us he uses he uses the words imperishable undefiled unfading this is not the inheritance of an old home that's going to need a whole lot of fixing up before it's going to be worth anything it's also not the inheritance of a sum of money that's going to be gone before you know it Instead, the inheritance of salvation is the inheritance of unending life with God. This is what leads Peter to say in verse 6, in this you rejoice. It's in this inheritance that God's people can take comfort and rejoice. At this point, Peter begins to talk more about the current situation of the Christians that he is writing to and how that differs from what is coming in the salvation that is um, in God's will. It's clear that the Christians during this time were facing some form of persecution. That's clear in verse 6, where he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It's also clear from the introduction the introduction, the first two verses, where he describes his audience as elect exiles. Scholars differ on whether or not this persecution was the persecution that came during the reign of Nero. Uh, It may have been some form of persecution that came a few years before that. But regardless of the exact nature of the difficulties that these Christians were facing, the expectation of trials and the lives of God's people is attested to throughout other areas of the New Testament. We can give two examples of this this morning. The first would be James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Another example comes from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. It states, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's three authors of the New Testament, James, Peter, and Paul, all stating that God has allowed these trials that we face and that he has a specific intention for them. I could add more passages and more authors, but we don't have time for that this morning. Some false teachers have said that they cannot believe in a God who intends for his people to face trials. And they'll twist scripture to say that God will heal any sickness or injury, turn your financial poverty into wealth, if only you have enough faith. These teachers simply don't believe in the God of the Bible. They, they don't understand these passages. This passage should encourage us because it tells us that God has a purpose for these trials. He has a a purpose for the trials that these Christians are facing, just as he has a purpose for the trials that we face today. The purpose listed in this passage is greater joy in God. Verse 7 tells us that the, the trials that we face test our faith in a similar way that fire tests gold. Peter, being the fantastic preacher that he is, has already given us the illustration for this truth. Gold is tested by fire. This testing is what helps to purify the gold. It reveals the impurities in the gold so that it can be removed. And then after the gold has been tested by fire and the impurities have been removed, it's far more brilliant than it was before. So how do we allow the trials that God allows to test our faith? faith? Peter tells us that we do this by Looking at what our response to the trials is. Uh, Sometimes trials that we go through cause us to question the wisdom or the goodness or the kindness of God. Peter's helping us here to see that this is the wrong response to trials. Instead, the the trials that God gives us are supposed to cause us to look more eagerly to the revelation of Christ. Uh, In early 2021, I had a a minor case of COVID, and I can say that I've never looked more forward to smelling a good cup of coffee as I did during those two weeks when I couldn't smell at all. Trials have a way of showing us what we take for granted. Sickness and injury show us how we take health for granted. Chaos shows us how we take peace for granted, and death shows us how we take life for granted. (laughs) But Peter here isn't telling us just to learn to be grateful for what we have when when we have it. That doesn't actually solve anything. We'll still get sick and injured, we'll still face times of stress, and we're all still going to die. Instead, he's saying that we, as Christians, can look to the salvation we have in Christ. Which means that in the end, after this life, we will have eternity with God free from those trials. Now, we might not live in a time or a a place of intense persecution like these Christians, but God still means for the trials, the situations that we face, to point us to Him. To make us more eager for the return of Christ. We're told that we should rejoice in our trials. Now, this doesn't mean that we pretend these trials aren't difficult. We don't face them with a fake giddiness or a or a stoicism, but instead, during the most difficult times, we can have joy in the fact that God is accomplishing salvation in us. Can you say, as Peter states in verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This then leads into verse nine where he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to conclude this morning by looking at uh, just a few of the ways that we can be applying these truths. First, in in verse 7, we see, he says, though we do not see Christ, we love him. And we need to ask ourselves each day, how are we loving Christ? Are we abiding in his word? Are we allowing his imminent return to inspire joy in us in our trials? Are we allowing it to inspire evangelism, sharing this good news with those we come in contact with? Or or have we been distracted by the temporary world around us as we so often are, myself included? Second, we should be asking ourselves What is the response to the trials that God has us facing? When you face strained or even broken relationships, can you rejoice that God has restored his relationship with you? How about when you face fierce temptations or fall into those temptations? Can you rejoice that Christ has conquered sin and this temptation will one day cease? What about when a loved one dies or maybe you receive a troubling diagnosis? Can you rejoice in those times that God is preparing you for unending life with him? To the Christians in, in the room, look to God during your trials. He hasn't given them to you out of spite or anger or maliciousness. No, he's, he's preparing you so that you can rejoice with greater joy at the coming of Christ. Christ. To those in the room who may not be Christians, this joy is still available. God is willing to forgive those who come to him in repentance, those who understand their need of him. God has accomplished the salvation of his people, and this we can rejoice. The death and resurrection of Christ on the cross paid for the sins of all who repent and trust him for salvation but God is also continuing to bring about the salvation of his people. And he has chosen to use a variety of means for doing that, often including trials. May we learn to rejoice as we eagerly wait for the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this morning and for this text. Um, We pray that you would Uh, Use it to encourage us uh, throughout the week, bringing it to mind. Uh, Pray that um, we would seek to honor you, that we would seek to to love Christ though we don't see him, and that we would glorify you with all that is within us. Encourage us in the trials that we face. Help us to learn that you haven't given them to us in anger, but instead you intend to use them to make us more like your son and to make us more ready for the arrival of your son. We thank you again for this time, and in Christ's name we pray, amen.